All right. Welcome back to RUF. I'm going to take uh, one more opportunity to announce the Bible 101, how to study the Bible. We can't possibly uh, cover everything it is that we uh, need to cover in the span of a semester or two, or even four years uh, that you're in college. And so, we take advantage of these little opportunities to kind of have a two-hour seminar. Yes, I know that seems very quick, but we will basically go through the entire Bible in two hours, pretty much. Uh, It is possible. We kind of do a flyover. But time and time again, I hear students that, that one of the biggest things they say How did you get that out of that passage? I could have studied that for hours and not come up with the same things that you've talked about. Uh, Or they'll come up and say, the Bible is boring, it doesn't make sense, it's confusing to me. If that's where you are, please come on Saturday, November the 14th, 10 to 12. Uh, We'll have, you'll get some coffee from O. Henry's and maybe we'll have some donuts or Something like that as well for us to snack on throughout the morning. Uh, but two hours, I hope you'll make time in your schedule for it. Now, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Mark chapter 10. Obviously, we're taking a break from the Old Testament. And we're going to look at a passage in the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. Let me set the stage for you. Mark 1 through 8, let me give you a little context for our passage. In chapters 1 through 8 of the Gospel of Mark, it's all about who Jesus is. The writer, Mark, is trying to tell us and show us who Jesus is. Trying to show us His character, His person, how He relates to people. And so 1 through 8, if you were to read it, it's filled with people asking the question of, Who is this man? Who is this Jesus that causes the blind to see and the deaf to hear? Who is this man that calms the storm? We see in Mark chapter 4, the people were filled with wonder and awe. And then in Mark chapter 8, if you have your Bible, please flip over to Mark chapter 8. We're going to kind of walk through a couple things here. might be helpful if you're looking at the context. Verse 29, we have the first... Prediction by Jesus of the Passion. His first prediction of His death. Jesus reveals that He is a suffering Savior. Reveals that He's going to the cross. And His disciples, namely Peter, say, no way. No way, Jesus. And then we see in that passage, Jesus rebukes Peter. Peter refuses to hear it. Then in Mark chapter 9, flip over with me to chapter 9, verse 30, we have the second prediction of Jesus, uh, of His death and the passion that is to come. If you notice there, the disciples again won't hear it. They won't have it. In fact, if you look at this, they don't get it, and their passage right after that reveals what? (laughs) They're arguing about who's the greatest, right? Then in our passage that we're going to look at this evening, Mark 10, verses 32 and following, we see that Jesus again predicts His death for the third time. 
Third time's a charm, right? Well, not hardly. Because we see here in this passage that Jesus is more articulate, He's more clear than ever before about where He's headed and the path in which He is getting ready to go through and take. But we also see that the disciples are more blinded. They're more deaf, more wayward in their understanding. I think you'll see what I mean as we read Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. This is God's Word. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was happened what was happened to him. Saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him. And kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I'm baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And they weren't indignant because it was this righteous uh, anger. No, they were indignant because they beat him to the punch. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your holy, inspired word. And we ask that you would show us our hearts through this passage. We laugh at the disciples. And we wonder how they could be so ignorant. And how they could not get it. But Father, if we were really to take an honest look at our hearts, I think we would admit that we're just like them that we um, refuse to accept the kind of Savior you are in a lot of ways. And so would you show us our own hearts, but would you also change us 
Help us to live differently. Show us Jesus tonight. In His name we pray. Amen. What are your dreams? What are your dreams? What do you dream about when you think about your life? Financial security? A good job? Job security? Maybe it's job satisfaction. Maybe it's to have a home uh, and to raise your children and not have to work. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe your dream is just simply to get married one day. Maybe your dream is that at the end of your life, you just want to look back at your life and say, I did it. My life was a life that was well lived. You know, we all have dreams, don't we? But let me go a little bit deeper. What is your core dream? And what I mean by that is what is the, your core dream is the thing that makes you utterly happy when you get it. But it's also the thing that devastates you when you don't get it or when it's somehow stripped from you. You see, your core dream is the dream that drives you in life. It often is the thing that gets you out of bed in the morning. It's your longing, your deepest longing in your heart. It's the vision that you have for your life. When the passage that we're looking at this evening, Jesus is asking the disciples. And He's asking us to trade in our dreams. He's asking us to trade in our dreams... For his dream. For a bigger and better dream. You see, the disciples and us as well, we have dreams of power, being significant, of being uh, comfortable or having a life of pleasure or a life of position. And Jesus says that his dream for our life is to die and to serve and to sacrifice so that other people might find life. And the question that we're going to look at is how do we do that? How do we embrace that dream that Jesus has for our life? Well, we have to consider three things if we're going to embrace the dream that Jesus has for us as His followers. And the first thing is, is we've got to see the problem. Look at verse 33. If you have an outline, it's on the back of the announcement sheets. This is interesting, and it's kind of like, as I, I've never really studied this passage until this week, uh, and I didn't really pick up on kind of how absurd this really is. But Jesus, look at verse 33 and 34. He's clearly presenting to the disciples... I mean, it doesn't get any clearer, right? He's presenting the passion, his suffering, his crucifixion, his death. Look at it. It says he'll be handed over to the chief priests and to the scribes. They will condemn him. They will turn him over to the Gentiles. Then what? They will mock him. 
spit upon him, flog him, kill him. Pretty clear, don't you think? Then look at verse 35. Look at the response of James and John. Hey, Jesus, will you do whatever it is we ask? Now, you know, Jesus has got to... Are you kidding me? I mean, don't you see what... Did you hear anything I just said? And what's going to happen to me? And this is what your response is? You see, James and John come to Jesus and they want a blank check. And they want Jesus to sign it. Jesus is saying, I'm going to die. And they say, yeah, yeah, we know, but give me my blank check. Give me what I want. Are those seats available next to you, Jesus? Those are the seats that we want. You see, James and John have dreams. They have dreams just like you do. And just like I do. And they're coming to Jesus and they're saying, Jesus, fulfill my dreams. Fulfill my dreams and give me the life that I've always wanted. Power and pleasure and position. You see, in essence, what James and John are saying is this. Jesus, this isn't the dream I had for my life. You know, when, I, when you asked me to follow you, this is not what I thought I was getting. Right? I'm thinking, I didn't sign up to suffer. They're thinking, man, my dream was what I saw in the Old Testament. The kings, they lived well. They lived in luxury. And I thought, Jesus, that we were going to conquer the Romans, right? We were going to set up shop. And we were going to rule. And I was going to be right next to you. And Jesus says, no, that's not the nature of my kingdom. Do you see in this passage, James and John are so intoxicated with self that they don't even hear Jesus when he's saying what's going to happen to him on the cross. They don't even see Jesus. And you know what? I'm just like them. And if I had to guess, I would bet that you are too. Donald Miller, Blue Like Jazz, has a great story. And he says the most powerful addiction on the planet is the addiction to self. Listen to what he says. The greatest lie any of us has to battle is that life is a story about me. My life felt like that once, he says. It was a story about me because I was in every scene. In fact, I was the only one in every scene, he says. If somebody somebody were to walk into my scene, it would frustrate me because they were disrupting the general theme of my play. Namely, my comfort. And then what he says next is pretty funny. Remember, his name is Don, Donald. He said, I discovered that my mind is like a radio that only picks up one station. And the station is K-D-O-N. All Don. All the time. Time and time again, we see in the Gospels, Jesus is trying to show us 
and he's trying to show the disciples the cross. And the disciples refuse to hear it because they want a life with no cost. What about you? I wonder if many of us aren't doing the same thing. How many of us tonight are ignoring what Jesus says about suffering and dying and serving and giving things up simply because we're coming to Jesus so that He can fulfill our agenda and give us what we want? How many of us are coming to Jesus with our lives and we're saying, Jesus, give me power, give me pleasure. Fill my life up with those things. Give me position. You see, we are intoxicated with self. And when we are intoxicated with self, it keeps us, it blinds us, and keeps us from hearing Jesus. And it keeps us from seeing His call on our life as we read about it in the Gospels. If we're ever going to embrace this life that Jesus calls us to, we've got to first recognize the problem. And that is, oftentimes, we are consumed with self. I saw a license plate on Montevallo Road this week. It pretty well sums it up. The license plate said, Me, my, I. We are often intoxicated with self. Secondly, let's look. The solution. Jesus here brings a gospel sobriety to our intoxication with self. And He does it by pointing us and asking us to consider the weightiness of a cup. Look at verse 38. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus says. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? Don't you love this response? Look at the disciples. We are able, they say. And Jesus says, guys, you don't even know what you're asking. Then look at verse 45. For the first time, Jesus gives us the essential truth about why He is going to die. It says, the Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. The word translated there, ransom, comes from the Greek word to loosen. It literally means to unchain something. And so here's the picture. Jesus is saying that the fundamental purpose of His coming is to ransom us to buy us back, to unchain us from something. And that something, the Bible says, is unchain us from the bondage that we have to sin and to death. And so then the connection between ransom and this cup becomes very significant. Look with me at verse 38 again. In the Old Testament, this idea of a cup always was a picture or represented God's wrath and judgment. For example, Ezekiel 23. You will drink your sister's cup, a large 
cup and a deep cup, and it will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry. You will dash it to pieces and tear your breast. I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. And so when Jesus rhetorically asked the disciples, can you drink this cup? The answer is an obvious no, right? The disciples can't even drink a sip of this cup and survive. They can't drink a drop of this cup of wrath and judgment that is talking about here in this passage. And then look, Jesus tells His disciples this, basically. I have ransomed you. And I've ransomed you because I'm going to ask the Father to pour that cup of wrath and judgment on me. It deserves to be poured on you, but I'm going to ask Him to pour it on me so that through my suffering... You will be ransomed. You will be bought back through my suffering. Jesus took the cup of God's wrath and He drank it all the way to the bottom. Every last drop of it so that God's wrath is completely and finally satisfied. That's good news. That is very good news because... God has chosen to pour His wrath out on His own Son instead of you. And I want to suggest that you'll never understand how much Jesus loves you unless you understand the wrath of God. You'll never truly love Jesus Unless you understand the wrath of God, you'll never be invigorated or transformed or excited or in love with Jesus until you get that. Because that is the gospel. And the image of Jesus drinking that cup of wrath for you should sober us. It should sober us out of our intoxication with self. So if we're going to embrace this life that Jesus calls us to, we've got to understand the problem. We've got to see the solution. And then thirdly and finally, we've got to understand the call. Look at verse 39. Jesus says, You will drink from the cup and you will be baptized. Now that sounds a little bit confusing, right? I thought he just said... We couldn't drink the cup. There's two cups, okay? It's not talking about the cup of God's wrath here. The disciples won't. They can't drink that cup. They never could. That's the wrath or the cup of God's judgment and wrath. But it is talking about they will drink a cup of suffering. Jesus is saying that they are going to undergo suffering. And as you think about this passage, 
you have to go and think about if they only knew how closely their lives were going to resemble that of Jesus. Right? Just look at church history. Go to Acts chapter 12. What happens to James? James is the first disciple. Martyred. Taken down by the sword. For Jesus and for standing up for his faith. And then his brother John, you know, church history tells us John was boiled in oil and actually survived and was sent off to Patmos, right? Where he wrote Revelation, the book of Revelation, and stayed there until he died. And so the disciples did get it. They did finally grasp what Jesus was talking about when he mentioned and started talking about this idea of a cross. Because we know that Peter also was crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified like his Lord. But so often we tend to romanticize the Christian life in our society and in our country. We tend to think a lot like Napoleon Dynamite, right? And Pedro... Vote for Pedro and all your wildest dreams will come true. You know, often that's the view. Come to Jesus and He'll solve all your problems. Come to Jesus and you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Life will be easy. But we often fail to see that the Christian life and the life that Jesus calls us to It's not a life of prosperity, but it's a life of serving. It's a life of suffering and death. Look at verse 42 through 43, 45. You see, the Christianity we see here, it works itself out. It's not meant to be spent on our own prosperity and comfort. Look at what Jesus says in 43. Whoever would be great must be your servant. A servant back then was the person at the door that was washing the dung off people's feet, the manure, when they would come in for a meal. That's what Jesus calls us to. That is the privilege that we've been given to wash the feet of other people and to serve them. Look at verse 44. Jesus continues, Whoever would be the first must be the slave to all. Every moment of our existence is to be spent outward, loving and serving those around us. We are slaves of Christ and slaves to one another. That is what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus means loving and serving and dying and sacrificing. Why? so that others might live, bringing life to another person. True Christianity. It's not about filling up our cups with pleasure and power and more stuff so that we can feel better about ourselves. True Christianity is about emptying our cups out, emptying our lives out to the world around us to our family members, to our friends, to the people in our hall, to the people in our classes. 
You see, Jesus comes in this passage. And Jesus says, I want to trade your dreams for a great brokenness that will fulfill you beyond anything you can imagine. Jesus says, I want to trade your dreams for a cross. But it's not that easy, is it? Because you see, the world tempts us, doesn't it? The world tempts us to believe that true life is found in a pursuit of self-indulgence and pleasure. It tempts us and we believe it. Oftentimes we have grown and developed this worldview that happiness and true life and true joy is found in an avoidance of suffering. In an avoidance of self-denial. But that's not the gospel that Peter preached. And that's not the gospel that Paul preached. And that's not the gospel that Jesus preaches in this passage. No, the gospel that they preached says that the real life is what? The one that you might lose. Most of you probably in this room, if I were to ask this question, are you a follower of Jesus? Most of you would probably say yes. And if you are to answer yes to that question, I hope you realize that following Jesus is a call to hear Him say that His dream for your life is a dream to come and die. Those are the terms. I wish there were others. But those are the terms of following Jesus. There are no others. But here's the good news. When you embrace the life that Jesus calls us to, the life that we see in this passage, you'll be closer to Him this side of heaven than you could possibly ever be. Because that we identify with Jesus in His sufferings and in His death. You think about that. Let's pray.